Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am still in Austin. Uh, food still is scarce. Uh, stress is still high. Um, roads are still impassable. Planes still not taking off. Um, yesterday, I, you know, one of the nice things about uh, liberal democratic capitalism is that we come up with better words for contractual arrangements than uh, than sort of pejorative criminal ones. And so yesterday, I didn't bribe someone to get me two granola bars for my daughter. I tipped them generously. <laughs> um, and uh, and so since we're here and everything has been thrown um, akimbo or cattywampus or off kilter. Um, and we're doing all of this with uh, bear skins and and copper wire and um, and one uh, Star Trek tricorder that Spock managed to disassemble. Um, just so you know, if the audio is weird, that's because we couldn't get certain things to work. And um, we are literally backing up this conversation on things like iPhones. So because the last thing I need right now is in terms of my spare mental bandwidth to record conversations, um, no matter how engaging that only get replayed in the platonic ether. So with that, um, I am delighted that someone who's actually nearby, but not near enough for me to actually see in person and a fan favorite of the remnant, um, is back. And, and he is also, uh, can report from the ground as it were about the, uh, magnificent uh, cockupery of texas right now uh, none other than my friend uh roving correspondent for national review author of many fine books including his latest big white ghetto dead broke stone cold stupid and high on rage in the dark woolly wilds of the real america which might as well be tattooed on my ass right now given my mood uh <laughs> kevin williamson welcome back to the remnant well, a couple of thoughts before we get started. One is on the subject of bribery, the Indian concept of bakshish really needs to make its way further into the Western world. It's sort of, sort of somewhere between a tip and a bribe. Yeah. Uh, it's neither quite one or the other. I think it's a useful thing to have. Secondly, I, I sympathize with being stuck in Austin. I got stuck there for five years <laughs> once upon <laughs> a time and didn't really get much out of it, and neither did they. Um, but it's, it's horrible, and I'm sorry about this, but you know, we both are, are in Texas. Of course, I live in Texas, but you're the one who's screwed. <laughs> like where we are, and I mean, it's minor inconveniences and, uh, you know, knock on wood, um, nothing serious has happened 
Um, we had some pipes that got frozen that we could fix with a hairdryer, um, but our power hasn't gone out. Pipes haven't burst yet. Um, none of that kind of stuff. So uh, we've been quite fortunate. Even you know, in my corner of Dallas, some of the local businesses have opened back up, so you can go buy pizza if you want to. That sort of thing. I'm not having to uh, buy, uh, bribe anyone for a granola bar, although because I'm I'm not quite a, a prepper, but I'm a, a sort of culturally Mormon. I like to say. Sure, sure. So when the um, when the epidemic started a little over a year ago, we sort of stocked up on you know rice and beans and canned food and that kind of stuff. So uh, the interruption in the uh, distribution of, of of goods and services is not had much of an effect on the Williamson household thus far, although it makes you uh, mindful of the fragility of things. It does. It's, um, um, I, you know, I, I am prone as is my colleague and our mutual friend, David French. I am prone to, uh, uh, zombie apocalypse scenario gaming out in my idle time. And my wife and I do a lot of this kind of chatter, not just zombie apocalypse, but that's just sort of, the 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 perfect paradigm for thinking about how you would do all these kinds of things and um it is really interesting like i was seeing this on our live event last night it took our hotel a couple days to decide to do what the four seasons and what the hyatt and these other hotels around here did pretty quickly which is reserve all of their resources simply for the guests of the hotel and not serve outsiders and it was really kind of interesting how quickly my brain went from let the market decide to be a good Samaritan to outsiders, <laughs> get them, you know, why are you here? And there's this, there's, um, uh, there's this great show that I love called The Expanse that has this scene where this guy is explaining how during times of peace and prosperity, everyone's trying people are tribal, but the tribes can be very big and very um, accommodating of strangers and newcomers and all that kind of stuff. But then during times of crisis, tribes get really small, really fast. Yeah. And you just stick with your core troop or platoon or whatever it is. And you can just sort of see some of that you know, on display around here. Yeah. When I was a little kid and uh, Red Dawn came out, like, I, was, I was convinced that was my future, that you know, yeah. I needed to be ready to Go up Convinced, hopeful, you know. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. yeah. Like we picked out which sporting goods stores we were going to raid and steal their guns and, and, and yeah. that stuff. And uh, but we spent a lot of time thinking about you know camping in the mountains. And uh, you know, Lubbock is six hundred miles away from <laughs> the mountains. It would have been a miracle to uh, hike that far across the prairie to get there to hide out from the Ruskies. So um, in retrospect, you know that was maybe not the most practical minded emergency preparation scenario but on the other hand i was in about fifth grade i guess so um yeah I've maybe thought through some things since then um just so you know uh david french has a very has access to a family compound uh, oh, nice. that has its own groundwater has uh um a large stockpile of weaponry and like a year's worth of food in some sort of cellar. And he's made it clear that if you can make it there, um, when the, uh, I guess now the Chi-Coms come, 
that he will provide sanctuary. Not for all of the listeners. That only comes with a full paid membership to the dispatch. <laughs> but I'm just this is just an offer for Kevin right here. I think um, David would make really a very entertaining warlord in a post-apocalyptic scenario, you know, because he's kind of a nice guy, but uh, you know, he can do the warlord stuff if he has to. Um I think I think tough but fair would be a fair. good way to describe him. He would not behead anybody who, who didn't have it coming, I don't think. Right. You know, and, and actually, though, in terms of zombie apocalypse planning, um, I'm as bad as anyone else in, in Texas not being prepared for winter, which is silly for reasons I'll get into later. But, um, you know, my escape from Dallas uh, strategy has always been based on the idea that all of the interstates and freeways will be impassable to right. uh, motor vehicles. But I have a motorcycle uh, mm -hmm. that is uh, an off-road motorcycle. So I can get around that stuff, but not in the snow and ice you can't. <laughs> no. <laughs> that is a good way to die. So, um, you know, plan B is the Mini Cooper, which is a lot less <laughs> of, a, of a warlord type vehicle, you know. Um, as I recall in Mad Max, there weren't any uh, roving van bands of Mini Cooper drivers uh, pillaging around and stealing everything. Yeah, although the Jason Bourne movie did more to improve the masculinity of Mini Cooper drivers than any other film before or since, I think. Although there was also a movie, um, uh, The Italian Job, which was all yes. Mini Coopers, too. So, uh, well, two um, versions of The Italian Job. There's the original one back in the 60s with the real Mini right. Cooper. And then that's the, right. the remake. I should point out that is my wife's car. I have a much more manly car. I understand. My my wife's car is a Mini Cooper as well, which is why you can you can tell I am not heaping any disparagement on said vehicle. Um, all right, so you know a bit about markets, you know a bit about economics, you know a bit about uh, energy, and um, you live in Texas. Hmm. Uh, how do you think people should think about um, the situation on the ground here in in Texas and and the energy grid stuff? Yeah, it's a, um, like everything else that's wrong in this country, practically, it's a combination of public and private failures. Um, these kinds of, of winter storms are unusual in Texas, but they are not unprecedented. And um, so I grew up in, in the Panhandle, and the kind of you know, weather region I grew up in starts maybe 200 miles west of um, Dallas and Fort Worth. And we get real winter there. You know, we get storms mm -hmm. with snow drifts that'll go up as high as your roof line, as high as trees. And I, I can remember sudden blizzards that came in so fast, they closed down the Amarillo Highway and that kind of stuff. So that's only a couple hundred miles from, from Dallas and, and the Dallas Metro. And um, so the idea that a winter storm like that couldn't shift a hundred miles east and a little bit to the south is, is wishful thinking. And um, you know, you're seeing these hilarious news reports. We haven't seen snow like this in Texas since 2009. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, that's great. That's great. Um, I think the um, the temperature picture is something that people really weren't expecting. I mean, snow you can kind of sort of deal with in, in various ways. In a lot of the cities, you can just ignore it, especially right now because people are already working from home because we got a plague before the uh, storm. Right. But um, the cold was enough that it caused various kinds of equipment failures around the state for things like natural gas wellheads and uh, the equipment that um, helps pipelines to operate. You know, the pipes themselves don't really freeze through 
Um, but some of the stuff can go wrong. Some of the nuclear plants had similar things where the equipment broke down because it was so cold and they had to, had to shut it down. So this is stuff that can be fixed. Uh, you can weatherize these things. There, there are things you, I mean, not every single piece of equipment, no, but there are a lot of things you can do to harden your system to that kind of thing. And it's a, um, you know, again, it's an unexpected and an unusual, but by no means unforeseeable uh, circumstance. Because everything in our politics is culture war. Everyone's fighting about windmills right now and how big a piece the, uh, the windmill picture is. And there's, I just posted on this at, at National Review, there's kind of a silly headline in the New York Times that says, no, uh, wind turbines are not the main source of Texas's power failures. Well, of course they're not. Um, they only make up about 7% of the power mix at this time of year anyway. So even if 100% of them went down, which close to 100% of them did go down, um, 98%, one person told me, although I have not independently confirmed that. Um, still, that's not a huge uh, piece overall if, if you get uh, a large amount of, um, of that wind power going offline. But it does account for, according to um, the state agency or the nonprofit corporation, I guess, that, that manages the electrical grid, the renewables that have gone offline account for about 40% of the missing power. So they are certainly disproportionately represented in that. Um, there are wind turbines that provide reliable power all over the world, including places that get reasonably cold, like Western Europe and Scandinavia. But they are built differently from ours. They've got, you know, essentially winter countermeasures built into them that we haven't done. And these are choices that people make. You know, uh, you can choose to build one way, you can choose to build the other way. And I think this kind of presents us with an interesting kind of dilemma of orientation for conservatives. Because some people say conservative and they mean penny pinching. You know, we don't want to spend any more on this than we have to. Some people say conservative and we mean risk averse. Uh, we want to prepare for things that are, that are going to happen. Winter is coming, as the, uh, as the uh, Game of Thrones teaches us. And um, I'm more and more, as I get older, on the risk averse rather than penny pinching into things. And I think the penny pinching actually can be a form of risk aversion. You know, we don't want to spend too much money because we'd like to have flexibility in the face of uh, unforeseen circumstances. And uh, we'd like to make sure that our resources aren't automatically all taken up and not able to be redeployed for some other end, which is one of the things that really worries me about, you know, the, the federal debt and the, and the annual deficit. And um, so we spent a lot of money subsidizing renewables. And yeah, I'm glad renewables are there. Um, I like wind power. I like solar power. Um, I don't like subsidies for, for anything, essentially. And I think that things ought to be built to the extent that the market will support it because that is how you make the best use of the resources you actually have. But none of this, I think, really breaks down <clears throat> along any lines that provide anyone with an ideologically satisfying narrative. This is not just a failure of government regulation. It's not just a failure of private enterprise. Um, it's actually a really good example of corporatism, you know, something that you've written about a lot. So in Texas, we've got the um, Reliability Council. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they, they wish they had a different name right now. <laughs> you know, kind of sort of reliability most of the time, Council. <laughs> and so they are a nonprofit private corporation that operates most of the state electrical grid. Um, the utilities are generally private companies. 
In some places, people have a choice between providers, but it's kind of an illusory choice because whether you choose A or B, your electricity comes over the same wires and your gas comes over the, through the same pipes. Um, they are, of course, so heavily regulated that they act essentially like government agencies. You know, you're not really a private business if you can't raise your prices uh, without the state's permission, and utilities generally can't do that. So it's a, it's a weird mix of, of things that unfortunately is, is the model for what a lot of people want to see in the rest of the economy in very sensitive things like healthcare, where they want to have insurance companies and providers and such regulated to such an extent that they act more or less like utilities, um, that they have to provide service and pricing in the same way utilities do in a way that is um, fixed according to certain political criteria. And you're going to end up getting the, the same results. Um, you know, it's funny because I'm kind of a, you know, off the wall libertarian in a lot of ways. But I think that we, we free market types don't do ourselves any favors by pretending that simply saying, well, markets will work, capitalism will take care of it and let businesses off the leash to do what they will is going to solve all the problems because it won't. Um, the reason you don't have 25 different competing gas providers to people's homes with 25 different competing networks is not policy. It's the fact that it's not practical to put 25 different pipes in people's houses and to build a new network every time you start a new company and take the old one out every time someone goes bankrupt or emerges or something. So these are you know, questions of, of practical physical reality that I think have to be taken into account at least. So I'm with you. I mean, I, I, I'm more of the risk averse you know, one of my favorite definitions of conservatism is the Abraham Lincoln, what is conservatism if not reliance on the old and tried versus the new and untried, you know, so there's a lot of wisdom in that. And, um, um, but the, so the, I, and I agree with you about the wind stuff. I mean, like some of the stuff that your governor was saying on Fox was sort of just real boob bait nonsense and we are all of us in the republican states are governed by fox news now yeah yeah and it's uh we can talk about that in a second but the um the the idea that i mean sir as you were pointing out i was trying to explain this to my daughter um here it was like because she heard me talking about the wind stuff and um you know and the way i explain it's like in dc with traffic and i'm sure this is it's the same principle in every big city if 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 the traffic is 10% lighter, all the cars can move basically at the maximum legal speed. If the traffic is just 5% heavier than full, you know, than maximum capacity, it, everything can grind to a standstill. The, the differences are always at that thing at the margins for this kind of stuff. And if you pull, as you say, 40, I didn't know that number, but that, that the 40% of the stuff that's out is wind that's a significant thing um but the stuff that that i think is the thing that annoyed me the most in the this public policy argument was the stuff that rick perry was saying mm -hmm. yesterday i guess where he said you know texans would rather tough it out in the cold than be part than take help from the federal government on their on energy policy or something and yeah. Like twenty something people have already died. There are people who have been without power for thirty hours, and the idea that like the Texas 
grid isn't part of some sort of federal scheme anyway. It's sort of silly. And he has to know that. He was the energy secretary. And the thing that bothers me about it is the reason why people like you and me talk about how we should use markets and markets are better and not, markets aren't perfect, but markets are better and the free market works better. Isn't that it's like this yeehaw, um, it's our culture argument, although I think it is part of our culture. It's that it, it's just a practical point of view is that like it, it works better than centralized planning. And, but there are times like during a pandemic, and we've talked about this before, where you need more centralization than you normally would tolerate because of the nature of the crisis that you're facing. And for Rick Perry to sort of double down on the yeehaw rather than just sort of say, let's figure out how to work the problem. I just think it's just, it's, it's sort of a foxification of, of, of a, it, what should be an intelligent conversation at a time of pretty serious emergency for a lot of people. Yeah, and that's particularly disappointing in the case of Perry, who actually knows a lot about this stuff and is a pretty smart guy. Uh, and you're a fan of. Yeah, you're a fan of. Have been in the past. Um, doubling down on yeehaw has pretty much been his strategy for the last, you know, five, six, eight years, maybe. And for a little bit there, around the 2016 primary, it looked like he was going to go the opposite direction. You know, he stopped wearing cowboy boots everywhere, uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. Stopped uh, exaggerating his accent, which for some reason Texas politicians do. Um, little pet peeve of mine, um, you know, George W. Bush is from Midland, which is one town south from Lubbock. I've never in my life heard anyone with that accent. I have no <laughs> idea where it comes from, but it sure as hell doesn't come from Midland, Texas. That's sort of like yeah. Sarah Palin's accent in Alaska. It's very hard to find someone else who talks like Sarah Palin. She sounds more like a Native, I mean, like a, a Native American indigenous than she does an Alaska from Alaskan from Wasilla. But anyway. Really? Huh. Yeah, I don't know much about Alaskan accents. I know a lot about Texas accents because I actually studied in school down there in Austin. That was a real useful application of my time. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that uh, one of the really lamentable things about where we are politically, and I don't want to tread too much on this because it's it's probably too familiar ground between us at this point, but it's the conversion of everything into culture war politics. So we've got a question here about some technical issues including how the Texas electrical grid is built and its relationship to the grid in the rest of the country and the reason why it's difficult to, uh, for Texas to import electricity from the outside. We've got questions about decisions that were made about winterizing equipment in a bunch of different industries that are all kind of related. Um, we've got a problem of correlated risk, which is that an unusually cold period like this not only interferes with electricity production, but it also greatly increases the demand for it at the same time, which is not what you want. Uh, you want risks that offset one another rather than risks that all move in the same direction. But what we have to do instead is have this yeehaw fight about, let's well, goddamn windmills out there. Yeah. Or no, it's not those goddamn windmills out there. It's you and your natural gas. Right. Um, when none of these things actually sheds any real light on the situation, none of them is going to produce any policy ideas that are going to be constructive. And I suppose it's probably partly related to the complexity of a society that is as technologically sophisticated as ours is. But most of the useful conversations increasingly are only happening among specialists in uh, highly technical areas. So, you know, I've had some conversations with people about, hey, what's up with the uh, situation in Texas? Why is our grid this way? Why are having these problems? And they can explain the stuff to a non-specialist at a relatively superficial level. Um, but the long-term questions about, well, how could we make better investment decisions about 
preparedness stuff for a situation like this versus all the other things we might do with that money, which also are good and desirable. Um, is a very, very difficult question to answer if you're a New York Times columnist or a National Review columnist or um, someone who wants to try to fit these things into a red state versus blue state, us versus them, real America versus the coastal elites. It's just useless. It's a, uh, it's a sterile and intellectually tail-chasing uh, way of approaching the world, but increasingly it's, an, it's a near monopoly on our political discourse. Yeah, and I, I gotta say, you were you were ahead of me on some of this. I mean, um, you were. You, let me put it this way: you gave uh, free reign to your inner Mencken earlier than I did. I did in in our relative comparative careers, um, and you know, people keep asking me what is, you know, what has changed about your views since Trump and blah 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 and. Obviously, I had my criticisms of boneheads on the right, you know, all along, and he's getting into fights with the stupid racists and all that kind of thing. But um, there's this psychological mechanism that I just simply I lost in the last five years, which is this sort of de facto assumption that my team is better, mm -hmm. and that I and it drives you. I mean, it could, I could always overcome it when I, I I thought necessary, but the times when I thought necessary were just fewer and more far between than they are now because I just don't have that default kind of like um, let me find the reason why we're right mm -hmm. you know orientation that used to drive a lot of stuff I did and I'm not I'm not rejecting all of that or any of that kind of stuff I'm just saying that that it was a source of it was a muse in a way yeah. and you can see it in a lot of our friends and colleagues on the right who I think it explains a big chunk of the 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 rush to the whataboutism stuff is that if you have to defend your own side and there is no good intellectually coherent defense of it you just cast about for the next best thing which is to say the other side is a hypocrite because look what they said or look what they did or look at the violence that they endorsed yeah. and since i haven't become max boot or jen rubin or something like that i think that side kind of sucks too yeah <laughs> um and so it's it's very liberating, but it also just feels kind of homelessness, uh, homeless e and um, and you were better at spotting the, the the buffoonery on the right than I was earlier than I was. Um, although I think we would both agree the buffoonery wasn't as pronounced ten or fifteen years ago than it is today. Yeah, it's become worse. I think when it comes to defensiveness of the Republican Party, in particular Republican politicians, the calculus that maybe I used to do and maybe used to do was that. There are compromises you make in order to pursue practical political goals that are good and right. that this trade-off is worth it. And I think that's where I disagree with some of the less abject Trumpists. You know, like, yes, we understand this is not an ideal situation, but um, we want to get X, Y, and Z done, and this is the way to get it done. And so we're not going to acknowledge things that we know to be problems. We're not going to be as rigorous in our criticism as we could or should be. Uh, for reasons of political calculation. And I've come to the opinion, I think, that that's a miscalculation, that conservatives are no longer getting enough out of the Republican Party and Republican elected officials to be quite so intellectually, morally, and, and politically indulgent as we have been for, for a long time. And I mean, that's been my, my main criticism of the conservative movement for as long as I can remember, is that it's 
too self-consciously associated with and subordinate to the Republican Party rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Republican Party ought to be considered an instrument and a tool rather than something that we owe obedience to or or fealty to in some way. So I do um, think that's a problem. Although I think, and not to one-up you on this, but my main (laughs) takeaway from, from the Trump years hasn't been so much a lower opinion of the Republican Party or the, the broader conservative movement, it's really a lower opinion of the American people. Mm-hmm. Um, because the Trump stuff, I mean, again, not to engage in whataboutism. And um, I remember after the, the ride at the Capitol, every talk radio show in this country the next day, well, the real story here is the media. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> the real story here is the ransacking of the Capitol. But um, you have analogous energies and movements on the other side. Bernie Sanders' movement is a lot like the Donald Trump movement, both intellectually and uh, practically. Um, and they're not that far apart in views either. And, you know, anti-trade, anti-immigration, all that stuff. They talk about it differently, but it's a lot of the same kind of populist horse bucky um, applied to the same ends for the same reasons. And um, I think that our, our problem is that Americans are intellectually and morally exhausted. Um, we don't know where to go. We don't understand why we're unhappy. And um, to the extent that we do understand why we're unhappy, we're unwilling to do the things that would change that. Um, we're rich enough that we haven't yet really had to make a lot of hard choices. And, um, but we're not so rich that we can completely ignore the consequences of refusing to make those hard choices. So we're always in that situation of simultaneously having too much and too little at the same time. And we have too much in the sense that we don't have a real spur to reform and intelligent action, but too little to get away with it. I used to know these people, uh, you know, when I was uh, editing a newspaper on, on the main line, which is this, um, you know, old blue blood, old money community. I knew a lot of these kids who had trust funds. I had kids, they're in their late 20s, early 30s. And a lot of them had the same situation where um, they had trust funds that were big enough so they didn't really have to work or anything, but they didn't have trust funds that were so big that they were like, rich. Mm-hmm. So they essentially were people in their, you know, 35, 36, 37, who were living on a kind of college undergraduate standard of living. Now, they didn't have to work or do anything to do that. And they didn't know what the rent on their apartments was because they never paid it. But they weren't satisfied with where they were in life. Um, they had too much and too little at the same time. And I think that's true of us nationally. We're the trust fund kid of nations. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I hate, hate giving credit, too much credit to, to Richard Hofstetter on this kind of stuff. But I think status class anxiety is a big thing um, that you, it, it's not so much resentment of what you have. It's about how little you have or, you know, how you want more. It's the, it's the feeling that you deserve more than the person who has slightly more than you has, or yes. that you perceive to have slightly more than you. That drives a lot of, a lot of problems out there. Um, and, and I'm with you on disappointment in the American people. Um, you know, uh, one of the questions we get all the time here is, okay, so you like strong parties and smoke filled rooms and um, you want to yes. get rid of bad. Yeah, I know. I mean, you're, you're on team smoke filled room too. Um, and uh, you know, and like and I'm I'm constantly railing about how Matt Gates is the symbol of literally everything that is wrong in American politics. Mm-hmm. Um, um, 
but the question we always got is how do you fix it? And you know, the, one of the core problems is, is that there's a market for this crap. And that market comes from the American people. And it comes from, you know, I mean, both sidesism gets a bad rap sometimes because, and sometimes it deserves it because there is an asymmetry between both sides, but there are common problems between both, of both sides. And, um, and there's also a problem of the people in the middle of those both sides that um, just don't care enough to provide the incentive structure and the market signals for politicians to respond to. I mean, if, if the American people tomorrow said, we're no longer gonna reward stupidity, cravenness, and BS, a lot of businesses that we are aware of would go out of business and a lot of politicians would see their careers, you know, uh, dry up and blow away. But the market isn't, the audience is not demanding that. Yeah, it's, um, there's a reason that, you know, uh, Sean Hannity's trouble in life right now is that uh, he may have misused his private plane. <laughs> and that my trouble in life is, is, is not that. Um, not that I have a lot of serious troubles in life. But um, yeah, and the, and the unfortunate thing about this is that people, particularly conservatives, I think, they want to be told how to fix stuff. They want to be told, here's a solution you can believe in, which is why you get these single issue fanatics like, uh, Fair tax guys, like they're a cult. I mean, I love them. <laughs> they're, they're nice guys, but it's a cult. And uh, there's no problem fair tax can't fix. And uh, I've had these guys. Gold standards, another one. Gold standards, a big one, yeah. Nope. Getting rid of uh, fiat currency and uh, fractional reserve banking and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it's just not the case. And a lot of conservatives say, well, if we could only fix education in the universities, or if we could only fix media bias then all these problems would go away. Because that's a really comforting story to tell yourself, because that story essentially is that the American people don't really have a problem. They've just been misled, uh, brainwashed, whatever, into wanting things that aren't good for them and to not supporting the policies that we support, which obviously would be good for everybody. And that's just simply not true. Uh, the American people are not victims of propaganda. They are eager, active consumers of propaganda. Um, and I think you're, you're right here that the, in this case, the demand uh, preceded the supply by, by a great deal. Uh, even if you look at um, you know, the late Rush Limbaugh and you look at the trajectory of his career and um, the way in which he conducted his program, uh, that kind of nakedly propagandistic um, subordinate, terrified of the audience, terrified of the movement and voters' way of looking at the world, um, became much, much more pronounced over the years. A rush to the end of his career was not very much like the rush of the 1990s. And you see this on the right a lot, you see it on the left a lot, where, um, you know, the New York Times is so buffaloed by its subscribers, which are overwhelmingly well to the left of, of center of American politics, that it's terrified of not responding when they start calling for the head of some employee over some weird taboo uh, cultural transgression. And uh, that, that, of course, is true on the right as well, where um, you, know, you can tell that Fox is just terrified of its audience. You can tell that Fox News or Talk Radio, rather, is just uh, terrified of their audience and that if they don't stay out in front of that parade, then um, 
they're going to lose their position. And of course, these guys have a lot more to lose than people like like me do. Um, you know, I would hate if I lost my job and had to go do something else for a living. But um, you know, losing forty or fifty million dollars a year is a very different kind of proposition. And I like to think that I have such great integrity and and such that I couldn't be swayed by such considerations. But I'm not sure that's true. Um, I think that if I had you know a tens of millions dollar a year contract on the line. Um, I probably would feel that kind of intellectual pressure much, much more acutely than I do. Uh, you know, in my particular situation, it's relatively easy to resist this stuff because National Review is kind of a boutique. Um, and it's not one that is uh, particularly um, immediately beholden to kind of you know, quarterly reports and things that you have to do if you're a regular for-profit uh, publicly held corporation. Um, so I'm in a pretty lucky position. But it's um, not not the same for people who are in talk radio and cable news and things like that. And I, I, I do worry that people can't see this though. You know, for me, I look at you know, Newsmax or something. And when I listen to, when I hear something from Newsmax, even their commercials, um, I don't hear political propaganda. I hear a business plan being executed. And these people are saying, all right, there are dopes out there. They've got money. Let's take the money of these dopes. And uh, here's how you do it. Um, it's like, you know, I, I mentioned this before, I went to this flat earth convention uh, about a year and a half ago and you could really tell, you know, who was selling a product and who was a true believer. And, um, so many of these guys are just so nakedly selling a product, but I think the people who consume this stuff don't care. Um, they don't mind being lied to so long as they are lied to in a skillful and entertaining way. I think of, um, you know, all the praise that Bill Clinton got back in the nineties for being slick, as they said, Democrats loved him for it. Uh, they loved his dishonesty because he was good at it. And they thought it made Republicans look like jackasses, which it often did. Um, but if you've got to the point where people want to be lied to, then it's a very difficult place, I think, politically to recover from. Yeah, no, I, 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 I wanted to get to Rush. Um, and we can come back to him in a second. But I, I, this gets, you know, this is one of my um, my enduring Obsessions is the treatment of politics as a form of entertainment. And um, and I think kayfabe, you know, this this concept from professional wrestling where it's it's supposed to seem like a genuine event that breaks the fourth wall from within the stageness of wrestling and people debate. Was that was that fight really was that scripted or were they really angry with each other? That kind of thing, you know, that that weird verite dramatic tension that you can't quite decide is is it is it a is it a happening or is it a a, a narrative that's what people crave all over the place I, mean, I, I thought the most telling almost i mean it was it was so perfect that it was almost the kind of treacle you would expect from an aaron sorkin script when um oh what's his name um Crazy conspiracy Infowars guy. Um, Alex Jones? Uh, yeah. When Alex Jones's lawyers filed in court saying that they could not be held accountable because they were uh, they were entertainers and this was not in no way a journalistic enterprise. I mean, I bet if you talk to a hundred devoted followers of Infowars, you would have it would, the kind of conversation you would have would be very similar to the kind of conversation you have with real, at least the, the, the professional wrestling obsessives I used to be friends with, where 
They say, yeah, I know it's fake, but, you know, and there would always be this sort of wanting it both ways, dancing in and out, using the fictionalized stuff to explain away the stuff that you don't like. And then saying, but the stuff I do like, you know, there's something really, here's the backstory here. Here's what's really going on. It just gives you the maximum range of, of psychological imaginary, uh, you know, uh, transcendental imagination to describe the reality of the way you want it to. And that's going more, that, that sort of stuff is just leaking into vast swaths of quote unquote mainstream media. Yeah. I think it's a variation on your uh, clown nose on clown nose off uh, model. On the rush thing. Um, someone asked, uh, we did this live event thing for, for subscribers last night. And one of the questions that came in was who is more influential on the conservative movement or the Republican party. I can't remember the exact phrasing, William F. Buckley or Rush Limbaugh. And alas, the the question didn't go to me because Sarah Isger is mean and didn't want to ask me. Um, Steve said Rush Limbaugh indisputably. And he made he made a good case for it in terms of Limbaugh's re- relevance in the 1990s pre-Fox and sort of like before you're saying everybody in Red State is basically governed by Fox. There was a certain amount of like before that they were governed by Rush um, aspect, um, though the Republican Party was not. There were a lot of adults still in the Republican Party in the 1990s, I think. Um, but if I had to answer it, I would. I don't think I would have said Rush because I don't. I don't think the Republican Party would be the conservative party were it not for William F. Buckley. Um, um, but it, the Republican Party's turn to populism, I think, is both a big chunk is Rush's doing, but also it's it's difficult to say that because it's also Rush was simply a manifestation of the same phenomenon that that happened to the GOP. But how would you slice all that up? I think from the founding of National Review until about 1994, Newt Gingrich, um, Bill and National Review style conservatism were um, unquestionably the predominant intellectual force uh, in American conservatism. Uh, The kind of populism that uh, Fox News and Donald Trump and and, and Rush and such uh, channel is something that's been a part of American politics since Jackson. Uh, And it shows up in both parties. It shows up in different ideological orientations. You know, it was George Wallace, it was Huey Long, it was Pat Buchanan, it was Ross Perot. Um, A lot of very different kind of figures in terms of their policy views and their kind of cultural resonance, but they all kind of came from the same energy. I think from 94 through... uh, now, uh, I think it's unquestionable that, uh, that Rush was the bigger influence. Um, at the risk of sounding uncharitable, I would say that uh, uh, of the things that we like about the conservative movement and the Republican Party, uh, Bill is much more responsible for, and the things I don't like about them, Rush is much more responsible for. Um, I never had any personal relationship with Rush Limbaugh. Um, he used to read my stuff on the air a lot and uh, not always being too scrupulous about crediting me. Uh, although <laughs> generally, generally doing so. And um, I think that um, 
as a matter of practical politics, obviously you have to do things like win elections and you have to um, therefore have some kind of popular appeal. Uh, you know, there's a reason why the National Review, largest magazine of its kind, you know, our, our, our traffic is not a uh, rounding error on Pornhub, you know, or something like that. This is where people's attention really is. Um, if you add up all of the ideological partisan highbrow political media together, you, know, you would not add up to the audience of The Bachelor uh, or 10% of it. So, you know, what we do as um, you know, kind of pointy-headed uh, right-wing pundits is um, try to exercise some influence and in some cases intellectual leadership over a relatively small number of people. Now, those people matter. They're, you know, Hayek's secondhand dealers and ideas. Um, they're not, you know, the great vast masses. They're not the isolated geniuses in their uh, garages. They're the people who are kind of in between that, who are business leaders and academics and media figures and cultural leaders of various kinds. And it matters what they think. And it matters where their cultural uh, affiliations uh, lie. Um, unfortunately, where we are right now with the populace really having the, the upper hand, um, and not only the upper hand, but really almost uncontested control, is that it's, it's very difficult for um, the more intellectual strain of conservatism to reach out to the kind of people that we want to uh, try to connect with and influence. Uh, it's one thing to criticize university administrations. It's another thing just to accept that they're a lost cause, they're an enemy of the people, and to treat them as you know, a threat to national security, which is kind of how we talk about it now. Um, you know, we've gone in a relatively short period of time from criticizing the excesses of the NEA to essentially writing off the idea of art, um, you know, and sneering at these people who drink wine and have art on their walls and eat cheese. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, maybe they don't represent the masses of new Soviet American man, but, you know, they're, they're part of the, the system, too. And um, so Republicans have really embraced this identity of being the farmer labor party. And I don't think that there's really much political future in it. I think that the appeal of this kind of populism is, is wide, but it's not wide enough to really carry a movement on its own. And it's certainly not intellectually rigorous enough to carry that movement in any particular direction in any kind of focused and organized way. Um, so you need both things, obviously, to have a movement that exercises practical political influence. But I think that um, in pursuing election wins at the cost of everything else, including intellectual integrity, uh, we've created a situation in which we ensure that it's going to be a very long time before we win elections or have that kind of intellectual standing again. Uh, alas, I think that is correct. Um, um, since I have you here when we're doing, um, and we're both in Texas, let's return to the Lone Star State for a second. Um, I am, um, I'm a big fan of Texas. It took me, a, uh, like, uh, I know you do this thing with, with Charlie, but um, um, I got to say, like, forced to choose between Florida culture and Texas culture, I choose Texas every time. Um, uh, and frankly, I, neither place is hospitable in the summer as far as I'm concerned, so I'd probably <laughs> choose Texas climate, too. Um, but I'm not a big fan of, and I refer to it as the yeehaw thing, like 
the guys who overcompensate with the cowboy hats and the boots. I mean, it's one thing if you if you work on a on a ranch, wear what you want to wear, you know, whatever. I mean, I, I'm fine with it at the margins, but there are people who really go overboard with some of it that I just kind of leaves me cold. And I know a lot of very successful Texans mm-hmm. and um, they're proud Texans. They like Texas, but they don't go all in on all that stuff. Um, they certainly, if they, to the extent they wear cowboy boots and have bolo ties, it's an afterthought. It's not like an, a huge identity signifier kind of thing. Um, but what I don't understand is like, I normally have this general view that, that, that powerlessness yields, um, a lot of stupidity and extremism and, you know, there's this thing, particularly on the intellectual left, that there's some great nobility and powerlessness and that you should always side with the powerless against the powerful and which is just utter ridiculousness because sometimes the people with power deserve to have the power and the people who are powerless deserve not to have power and you have and to make distinctions. they and, don't. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 if power just simply made you evil, then God is the devil. Right. Um, and uh, Isn't that a pixie song? It may not may, may, may well be. Um, but so Texas has been run by Republicans for a very long time. And yeah. the Republicans I know in Texas are very reasonable, smart people. I mean, they're very free market and they're very, you know, capitalistic and all that kind of stuff. So what explains like Alan West and these yachts talking about secessionism and going all this way? And it's one thing for the the GOP of Portland or of, of Oregon to do this, right? Because I mean, yeah. like the only people who are willing to take the slings and arrows of being members of the Republican Party of Oregon are going to be some kind of wackadoo, you know, CPAC basement types. Yeah. But like Texas is a, the Republican Party is where the power is in Texas. Yeah. And yet it's it's trafficking in this craziness. What explains it? Yeah, you know, you just reminded me of something I've I've said for a long time that if somebody really wants to be an American hero, what someone needs to do is be the guy who takes one for the team and goes and actually rebuilds the Republican party in California. Yeah. Which is something that needs to be done and uh, hasn't been done. So I think uh, I have a kind of cultural explanation of that because as you know, I, I grew up here and I grew up in, you know, what we like to think of as the real Texas, you know, in, in West Texas, it's not like Austin or Houston or, or Dallas. Um, you know, it's cotton farmers and actual cowboys and such. Um, although that's not my life. Um, my read on this is that this kind of weird, cancerous, mutant, metastatic Texasism is something that has grown up alongside the urbanization of the state and the, um, and the end of the, uh, rural agricultural, uh, culture and mode of life to which that cowboy thing refers. Um, so the, the fewer actual cowboys there are, the, uh, the more pretend cowboys there are, the fewer actual farmers there are, the more, uh, you know, kind of good old boy stuff. Uh, you have, um, you have not ever been to my, my house, not in spite of an invitation, by the way, uh, maybe next time you're in town. Uh, but I live in this part of town that, um, it looks a little like San Francisco. Uh, it's not row houses like that, but it's old houses on very narrow lots, uh, mostly without garages and that sort of thing. Cause it was built in in an era when that's how, how housing was built. And, you know, you've got these guys here, <laughs> these 
you know, F-350 trucks in front of their houses with uh, dually wheels and all that kind of stuff. They are not towing around horse trailers on the weekend. They're not, you know. And, um, of course, these are the guys who were in the 135-car pileup uh, a couple of days ago in Fort Worth. Um, You know, even in the 70s, which I I remember pretty well, um, you think about Texas country music in the 70s, it wasn't this, you know, kind of white hat, fake cowboy thing. It was, you know, sort of hippies like Willie Nelson or sort of, you know, lounge singer types like uh, Terry Allen. Um, there wasn't this kind of, uh, I mean, there's always been talk about secession. It was always kind of a joke for the most part, and sometimes it still is. Um, although I think it's taken on a more serious political resonance than it once had, especially among kooks. But um, the whole kind of... Uh, I'm a good old boy. I drive a truck. I wear boots. I wear a hat. And I, I, I own a lot of hats. And I own mm-hmm. a lot of pair of boots. I don't own a truck, but um, I, I do like them. And, uh, but that as a kind of ersatz cultural identity is, um, is a really weird thing. So we've taken essentially a kind of fashion and made a, uh, a fake identity out of it. Because we don't know what else to believe in. Because the truth is about Texas, it's not that unusual a place. You know, Dallas is a lot like Atlanta. Houston is a lot like Los Angeles. Um, El Paso is a lot like Tucson. Um, These places have a lot in common. Big cities all around the country are a lot alike. Uh, Ex-urban areas around the country are a lot alike. Agricultural areas around the country are a lot alike. You know, when I go, I've been to farms in um, South Dakota and Ohio. They're a lot like farms in Texas. Um, that's just how these things go. Cattle ranches in California are a lot like cattle ranches in Texas. Big cities in New York are a lot like big cities in Texas. And um, so that distinctiveness that Texas Texans have always prided ourselves on isn't really there in any kind of very obvious way. And to the extent it is, it's uh, often things that we we now resent or recoil from. For instance. Um, the existence of a kind of hybrid border culture along the Texas-Mexico border. You know, um, I know people in in the panhandle who really resent when they see uh, billboards in Spanish along the side of the highway, and they think this means something bad for them culturally, something's gone wrong. Um, But I don't think that's really the case in places like El Paso, where um, which is not that far away, but where they really had a kind of hybrid border culture and they're used to Spanish-speaking people, and have had Spanish-speaking people around for as long as there have been people there, or this as long as there have been non-Indian people there. So it's weird to be a um, state whose identity is so um, historically tied to being a border state in many ways and having close relations with Mexico, but is so uh, anti-immigrant, and particularly so anti-Spanish-speaking immigrant. And that is so tied up in this agricultural small town uh, mode of life that hasn't really been the dominant way of life in Texas in probably 100 years, uh, maybe more. Um, so that's really interesting. I, I want to see what you think about. Maybe I asked you about this before. Um, and I don't think this is some grand pro- private thing that she told me, but uh, our friend Virginia Postrell, I think she was the first one to say this to me, and I've asked Texans about this 
Um, particularly Dallas. What do you say? How do, what do you, what's the word for people from Dallas? Dallasites? Yeah. Dalasians? Um, Daleks? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yuppies. Uh, um, that, you know, anyway, Virginia once said, because she had moved to Dallas years ago, and um, she said, the thing about Washington, the thing about New York, the thing about LA is that money matters, but really the, the main currency for, for, for status is status, celebrity of some sort, right? In Washington, it's access to politics and that kind of thing. LA, it's basically celebrity. In New York, what's unique about it is that you actually have a nexus of several different trend lines of celebrity, money, power, status, all that kind of stuff. But um, she said one of the nice things about Dallas, um, if you're of a certain philosophical point of view, is that among elites, it's just money. Like if you make, if you're an immigrant off the boat and you make $50 million a year because you started a wire hanger factory, then you have as much prominence as the guy who has $50 million a year from 10 car dealerships whose family has been here for a hundred years or whatever. And for people like you and me, this is a great example of the democratizing power of money, you know, that it, it cuts off all of these sort of old ethnic religious uh, identity politics things and measures people by one metric, one interpretation of one narrow metric of merit. And obviously it has drawbacks, but there's also benefits to it. And um, that's one of the things I like about Texas is this practicality thing that it is less ideologically suffused. And which is why I find like the Rick Perry thing so stupid is that there's a, the, the kind of Texan-ness I like is this can do you know, cut the BS, let's just solve the problem kind of thing that you get in Texans. And I suspect you probably got in Californians 50 or 100 years ago. Um, but the thing that, all right, so I want to ask you about this is a very narrow question, but I was stunned. You know, you talk about how Texas is urbanizing and it's becoming a, you know, cosmopolitan place and all that. You can definitely see it in Austin, although not, maybe not the last few days. Um, and so when this thing hit, and all of a sudden all the restaurants started closing before our eyes and all that, I would have expected that instantaneously this would be the moment for the food truck industry here. Um, this is supposed to be the, the food truck capital of America in a lot of ways, right? And in New York, as you know, five minutes into a blackout, the streets are swarming, mostly with African migrants, but whatever, selling flashlights for 25 bucks a piece. Yes. <laughs> and the second it rains, they're selling uh, umbrellas. And um, and that's true in a lot of places in Europe, too. And anyway, so like, I've seen 0.0, I've seen a lot of good Samaritans helping each other out. That's great, fine. I've seen 0.0 entrepreneurialism in town amidst all of this. It's And it, to me, it's kind of fascinating. I've driven past parking lots full of food trucks. and I was, I've talked to staff here is like walking around downtown Austin, you know, I'm just off of Congress street. I'm like the Congress bridge is right over my shoulder. Um, Congress having a bridge, um, a pizza truck that stopped in front of this, parked in front of this hotel and they would let it park in the, the, you know, the, the driveway would sell out 
in two hours and they could charge, they could price gouge, which we both don't really believe price gouging is a thing, um, very easily. And see, I've just seen zero of that. I mean, should I be surprised by that? Well, remember that you're seeing this on top of the coronavirus shutdown. So there's been a lot of disinvestment from uh, services. A lot of those restaurants were going to be either limited or closed to start with. And they've had practice being out of business for a few days. Um, so a lot of people are doing the math. I think that says in terms of risk and reward, it's just not worth it to me. Um, but yeah, I do think if in, in Austin, if you were delivering pizzas and it was a hundred dollar delivery charge, you would, you would sell some pizza still. Um, in this hotel alone, there are families moved in here because they lost power at home. Yeah. And so there are a lot of, so, you know, Austinite refugees with their dogs and babies and stuff. Mm-hmm. They pay through the nose. I mean, I didn't mean I would have paid through the nose. And it just it's just very interesting to me that you know, I think you would get this in DC or Milwaukee. I know there are people here in Dallas who have rented hotel rooms, even though their power's not out, just in case, you know, because it's a relatively yeah. low-cost hedge. And yeah. um, which I'm sure makes them unpopular among people who currently can't rent hotel rooms because they're all uh, all filled up. Um yeah, I think that also goes back to the thing of having too much and too little at the same time, where there's just not the kind of spur to do that stuff for people that there maybe ought to be. Um, and partly that's a cultural change where instead of admiring the moxie and the opportunism, we look at them as, you know, being somehow vulgar, profiteers, price gougers, that sort of thing. Um, and something that's very hard for Americans to talk about because we don't like to talk about the real inequality in our society. Um, but this is one of the many ways in which rich Americans subsidize poor Americans. So if you really had a kind of culture and environment where um, in a situation like this, you could just sort of go all out and say, yes, we'll sell you gasoline, but it's $60 a gallon or whatever. There are people who pay that and that gets the market moving, they get supplies moving, um, and that helps prices get back to where they need to be into a more normal place. Uh, instead, you've got this sort of shutdown where, um, you know, there are people who have money, so they're prepared for these kinds of things because they're always prepared for things because that's one of the nice things about having money. There are people who live paycheck to paycheck who can't prepare for these kinds of things. And um, so, you know, the people who are very well off are not really being made terribly uncomfortable by the coronavirus shutdown, and they're not being made terribly uncomfortable by the storm unless, you know, their power has been interrupted or something like that. And of course, the really wealthy people have their own backup power and all that stuff too. So um, they don't really have a spur. There's maybe not as much opportunity to sell them things as, as you could. But um, yeah, that does kind of surprise me though, that um, I know the part of Austin you're talking about, and there are a lot of hotels around there. And even with what's going on the roads out there, getting a food truck from one to the next and uh, selling tacos for $60 a piece <laughs> all day would be a completely feasible business model. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I have been surprised, you know, as you know, my wife's from Alaska, so she, mm-hmm. she has very strong opinions about a few <laughs> things. <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, one of them is she, she has utter contempt for DC drivers in snowstorms and they don't know how to drive in snow. I got to say like, and I, I will points for honesty to the Texans because I've been talking about this on Twitter and all the Texans admit every Texan here I've talked to admits none of them know how to drive on ice and snow. Oh, and I have yeah. seen, I've seen two nights ago, 
I saw two cops in one of those weird sort of downtown, almost like a beach buggy golf cart kind of thing, take a turn so sharp that they nearly died and died by crashing into pedestrians on the street. And these are cops. I mean, like, just like it's, and one of the things that's really kind of fascinating is all these dudes with these pickup trucks. And I always thought the point of owning a pickup truck was to be able, because growing up in places like New York and living in DC, I don't have a lot of stuff to haul, but like I, I see the value of having a pickup truck because of the ability to drive in bad conditions and that kind of stuff. But as my wife explained to me, which makes total sense, lots of people get pickup trucks that only have rear power, rear wheel power. And so, which I gather has advantages in certain circumstances. I'm not a car guy, but like, and this is why my wife has all these stories about how when they had a very steep driveway in their place in Fairbanks, uh, my mother-in-law would put all the kids in the trunk to wait down the back of the car to get it up the driveway. Right, yeah. Um, but all these pickup trucks, I've seen them all over town. They don't have any weight in the back. And so they're flooring it. Yeah. And I I can't remember the last time I saw people actually burn rubber on ice and um, and not moving a bit. And it's just, it's it's very nerve-wracking to drive around with your kid. And burning, anyway, I don't know how like on ice is going to be the name of my next album. <laughs> oh, but, but anyway, but there are people with serious vehicles here who could tow a food truck someplace, you know, and, um, and presumably some of these people have a warehouse unit with food supplies that they could use. And it, before this hotel, I'm in the line, you know, uh, hotel before they closed the coffee shop to outsiders, or as I like to call them outside scum, um, uh, the line for no offense, to these guys, I mean, they're running low on supplies, not great coffee was about 90 minutes and like you could have a coffee truck that would anyway it just i just think it's really kind of interesting that's not happening and i I would have at least expected it from like in dc i live in a ritzy neighborhood we brought down the average age and household income on our block by about 50 percent when we moved on it um uh we're one of the only houses that doesn't automatically have our driveway shoveled from snow and all that kind of stuff. We have, there are people who have these services where the people come out instantaneously. And then the other people hire these like immigrant guys, these Mexicans with a truck who will do it. Um, I haven't seen it much of that either. I mean, it just yeah. like, it's just, it's just, it's, it, it, it's, it surprised me. With all that. Yeah. Yeah. You just made me think of something that's kind of a tangent, but um, something that I find interesting, which is the Unlike idea. Unlike all of the incredibly pertinent stuff I was just talking about. <laughs> the idea of outsiders. Um, I was just reading a book that's a history of the uh, Comanche. And uh, the Comanche's name for themselves in their own language isn't Comanche. It's a, it's a different word, and it just means people. And the word Comanche comes from the language of a uh, neighboring tribe, and it means enemies. <laughs> um, <laughs> but apparently, and I'm, I'm no expert on Native American languages, but according to this book I've been reading, that's actually a really common naming convention among Native American tribes that you call yourselves the people and your word for the people and the tribe next door are enemies or outsiders or the others or, you know, some particular aspect of them. As I understand, that's the case with uh, Mongolian language, that the, the word for Mongolian people in Mongolian just means the people. And um, I think that's maybe uh, a deeply imprinted natural tendency of ours 
Um, you're talking about the need for uh, or the, the pressing energy for uh, much smaller tribes during uh, times of crisis. And I'm increasingly of the mind that these aspects of, of human nature are really, really hard to get over and can't be overcome with good government and policy changes, education, political culture, those things. We can mitigate some of those effects, but people, I think, will naturally revert to that state. Yeah, no, I think it's part of our programming. And you can see little, so, uh, since we're doing this tangent, um, uh, a few years ago, my family and I, we listened to an episode of Radio Lab mm-hmm. that um, back before it got really bad. Um, that um focused like i can't remember what sparked the the story but it focused one segment of it focused on a skull from like a paleolithic you know some really old skull of a two-year-old or a three-year-old and it had talon marks on the inside of its eye sockets and they talked about how there used to be these birds that had like these 12 foot wingspans that would pick up small children and carry them away and feed them to their young, which is sucks. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, before that they did it with monkeys and all that kind of stuff. And someone in it said, you know, that, that weird shiver you get when a shadow goes over your head sometimes that just makes you feel uncomfortable. That is some part of your lizard brain warning you that there could be something with talons about to pick you up by your eye sockets. <laughs> and I think in those terms, all so is the that time your, about, your version of what you use in your 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 conversations with your daughter of your children starving in China? <laughs> you could be <laughs> spooked like up that. by a bird and have your eyeballs pulled out. Not complaining. Um, but uh, um, I, I'm constantly on the lookout in my daydreaming states for these little cues from our prehistoric selves mm-hmm. trying to poke themselves up, you know, po- you know, stick their head up into our brains. And that totally deplorable, uh, unredeeming feeling of superiority you get when you get upgraded to first class and you see people walking past you. Oh, there's nothing better. Turquoise. <laughs> it's a, terrible thing to feel in yourself and you have to fight it back because you know you've been that guy walking to the back of the plane and you will be that guy again but there's an immediate sense of i deserve to be up here you <laughs> and are walking, yeah and people walking past me. or just your ability to loathe and despise pedestrians when you're driving and to loathe and despise drivers when you're walking it's that's that us versus them thing comes out in us in all sorts of fun and weird places. There's a guy I've known for a long time, and he was a smoker up until about his early 50s, and he quit smoking. And when he was a smoker, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, he was one of these guys who was always complaining about, oh, we gave him a non-smoking section. Now they want the whole restaurant. Now we can't smoke on planes. And they tax this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And about five years after he quit, he was like, we should prohibit these things. <laughs> we should get rid of them. I can't stand the smell of it. It's a disgusting habit. What's wrong with these people? What are they thinking? Uh, we shouldn't let these people smoke anywhere near the doorways, the buildings I have to go in. Just an absolute, you know, uh, 180. And I think that's unfortunately just part of who we are. Yeah, my um, my wife once saw 
um, this comedian. I'm, I'm I'm trying to look up his name because we all know it. Um, uh, used to write for the Weekly Standard every now and then. Um, Larry something. Larry Miller. Okay. Yeah, I think it was Larry Miller. You saw him uh, playing in. Uh, what are the Twin Cities? It's St. Paul and um, Minneapolis. And Minneapolis. So I guess my wife saw him in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And I could be buttering this, but it doesn't really matter for the point of it. And he was doing a whole bit about how, whoever the comedian was, was doing a whole bit about how, you know, they call us the Twin Cities and all this kind of stuff and blah, 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 blah. But we all know that if we could get away with it, we'd slaughter them all in their sleep over there in St. Paul. <laughs> and, and it just always comes to mind every now and then about, you know, how, you know, every, every culture has their version of, you know, we don't do Polish jokes anymore, but like North South Dakota and say North Dakota jokes and Canadians yeah. say Newfie jokes. I mean, there's just this thing in us about that kind of thing. And of course, yeah, there's, this a, is how there's a Lubbock Amarillo thing where I grew up, you know, they're the only two cities of any consequence out there. And they both look down on one another. They're identical cities. I mean, if you, if you drop someone off uh, who was born and raised in one and they didn't know they were in the other, it would take them a few hours to figure it out. <laughs> well, it's like um, my favorite line, one of, literally one of my favorite lines from The Simpsons is where the, the Springfield kids led by Bart and Milhouse are in some sort of weird war with the Shelbyville kids. And they're both kind of chasing each other through the woods and whatever. And at one point, Millhouse finds a candy wrapper on the on the ground, and he picks it up and he goes, "Candy." But those those Shelbyville kids love candy. They love it for the sweet, sweet taste. You know, as if like <laughs> <laughs> it's like some evil thing that only Shelbyville kids do. Anyway, um, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on uh, again. Roven correspondent, National Review, former colleague of mine. Um, author most recently of Big White Ghetto and uh, stay warm dude you too uh, if you can get out of Austin and get up to Dallas I got a good guest room <laughs> we have, I appreciate it I have many offers but I just haven't been able to I mean the roads are the roads are truly dangerous I have to say no. yeah um, maybe a sled and a couple horses <laughs> Okay, so I've aged considerably since that conversation ended because I had to uh, um, jump off the computer and deal with the fact that yet another one of my my another one of my flights was canceled while I was recording that. Um, so I've lost count, but I've been canceled now. I think four times on United and uh, once on American and. And now I'm rebooked and I have to drive to Houston because I no longer have any faith in um, the Austin airport ever being a portal to anywhere else in America. It is in effect, um, in terms of my confidence in it, it is on par with the Italian lira in the 1970s. I just have zero confidence on it, in it whatsoever. Um, but it's always good to talk to Kevin. Um, you know, one point occurred to me that I didn't bring up, uh, you know, where he was talking about the, the pressure of being a TV host and not wanting to sacrifice your tens of millions of dollars in income. Um, I do think that's real, but knowing some of the people who are on TV, 
Um, and knowing lots of people who really think it's hugely important to be on TV. I think the income stuff is just part of it. There are some people who just don't know how to be people who aren't on TV. And it has more to do with that status uh, anxiety stuff than it has to do with, with money. Um, you know, a great example of this is Larry King. Larry King recently died. He was once like the premier television talk show host in America, hugely influential. Everyone sat down with him. And rather than go off into retirement, um, he just kept doing whatever TV opportunities would afford themselves. And because he didn't know how to be Larry King without being in front of a camera. So I don't know if he ended up on Russia Today or um, at the very end. I know he was on Russia Today for a while or, you know, if he was on the George Foreman Grill Network or whatever it was, but he just, one of these people would just dry up and blow away if he wasn't on TV. And there are lots of those people out there. Um, I mean, Hugh, I think his name is Hugh Downs. He used to be a big uh, ABC reporter and, you know, he does infomercials now. There are lots of these people who just think it's more important to be recognized in airports and the money is a secondary consideration. Um, and I'm sure that the vast wealth stuff is a catalyzing thing on these other considerations, but um, I've just known too many people who think it's vitally important to be famous and that's who they are, that I don't think it's just a, 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 a financial thing, which I'm sure Kevin agrees with me. I just, we got sidetracked by something else and I thought I would bring it up because it's something I've thought a lot about. Um, anyway, I am, uh, I am truly exhausted and I still have to write a column and, and figure out how I can get past, um, the newly, uh, barbarized Boy Scout troops who are foraging for food in the frozen streets of, of, of Austin. Um, I saw them take down, um, you know, an entire uh, UT school bus thing and feast on bone marrow. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's hellish out there. Um, I'm already contemplating wearing animal skins made from the various doodles and pugs that now live in this hotel. Um, but hopefully I won't have, it won't come to that. So, um, thanks to everybody who showed up for the dispatch live event. Um, if you were a member of the dispatch community, you got to hear it and, um, and you could replay the audio now and video if you wanted. Um, you would get to see me and my, um, um, my, my, my new barbarian, uh, sartorial splendor. Um, and I think everybody is very lucky that it's, that, that there's no, um, smell of vision, um, on dispatch live events. And, uh, I will figure out how to do the solo remnant, uh, tomorrow from someplace, somehow, somewhere, uh, maybe in a snowbank with my daughter staring at me quizzically about why I am just saying these random things off into the ether, um, as we slowly get buried, um, or eaten alive or something. Anyway, I'm incoherent, uh, but that's a feature, not a bug of this fully functional podcast. So uh, thanks for tuning in and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.